If you have your Bibles this morning, yeah, we're back to Proverbs chapter 24. And last week, uh, we looked at the opening five verses, and uh, we saw the process, a very good look at the process of spiritual growth, basically in a fundamental way. It comes down to two different aspects. One, we saw it last week, building your own house, your spiritual body. And then through that process, allowing God to establish you. God will establish you in two ways. He'll establish you in His Word, and then He will establish you in His work. And of course, His work will be a New Testament local church based on uh, the Bible principles of what a church is. And we talked about staying away from the negative, non-biblical things uh, in the world that will impact your life. And then through the association with people who simply will make you better, help you uh, get where you want to get. You know, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17 has a great verse. It talks about iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. That's a verse that we built our prayer groups on when we started to have everybody meet together. Uh, Obviously, we did it for the prayer request and the prayer time and the teaching of the Word of God. But more than that, uh, or in adjacent to that, it was to help you uh, be better, to help each other work through issues, to build a camaraderie, to build a relationship with people, that you would make each other better. And as the child of God, you know, we're commanded to study. He says, to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman was needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He says that in, uh, in uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 15. And it's a very important, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 15. It's a very important uh, process. But I showed you last week out of the verses and how also a lost man or even a saved man that's out of fellowship with God, he will study to bring about a destruction, not only in his own life, but whoever he associates with. And we saw that great principle many, many times in Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where you actually see the progression laid out for you of how that, uh, that, that process works. And lastly, last week, I told you that the man of understanding, this is 24-5, he increases his strength. A wise man is strong, yea, a man of knowledge increases strength. You never stop growing spiritually. There should never be a time in your life when you don't press forward uh, to learn more, to get more, to be all that God wants you to be. Obviously, God's wisdom and understanding is endless, and it certainly is. So our learning and our growth also should be endless. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, he talks about us growing up into Christ, being like Christ. Your daily growth should continue every day of your life till the day you wake up and the Lord comes back for you when you're just like Him. And today I want to talk to you about one verse, the next verse, verse 6, and it's a great verse. It's one of those verses that, that needs to be preached by itself. And this verse, along with what we looked at last week, I kind of separated it out from the first five because it has such a powerful message to it. And it's Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6. And here's what it says. It says, For by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war, and in a multitude of counselors there is safety. uh, Joe Christensen, would you stand up and ask the blessing on our time today, please?
Amen. Now, I've told you many times that New Testament Christianity, or the church, is broken down into two concepts. When you want to study the church, or what the church is, or how you, uh, what it's all about, you start with these two concepts. And I've told you many, many times, in fact, we talked about it uh, uh, several times in Institute and also on Sunday morning. But the first one is the church triumphant. And that will be the spiritual body. When you got saved, you were put into the body of Christ. That's Christ's church. That is the spiritual, real church that the Bible talks about. The real church is not a building. It's not, a, it's not something that can be made with hands. The real church of Jesus Christ is a spiritual body that you're put into the moment you get saved. Nobody can touch you in that. Nothing can hurt you in that. You have the victory in Christ Jesus right now this morning in your life based on the church triumphant. And that's why it's called the church triumphant. When you recognize that, when you key into that, that's why you already have the victory. You may lose some battles in life, but I read the last book of the Bible. I want to tell you something. We may lose some battles, but bless God, you're going to win the war. In fact, the war's already been won. Now, yeah, the church triumphant. The second aspect is the church militant. That's in this local New Testament church. That's you and me slugging out the ministry. That's you and me facing the obstacles of what's out there that you and I have to stand firm and fight the good fight to get the work done for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's two aspects to it. Now, in the church triumphant, there's only victory. In the church militant, there should be only victory, but unfortunately, there's a lot of defeats there. And it's because people won't plug into the church triumphant, and they won't look at things that the way that they should. And all down through the Bible, and all down through the history of the church, the church has been portrayed as an army. The church militant. Now, I know what I'm about to say and what I've already said is not popular today in most churches. Most churches are conscientious objectors to a spiritual warfare. Most churches, most Christians, and I say this uh, with love in my heart. I'm not, there's no malice in me. This is just the truth and the facts today. Most Christians couldn't, couldn't fight a good spiritual warfare if their life depended on it. And it's the fact that they, 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 the idea of war, the idea of being in a fight, we have such a mamsy-pamsy Christianity today Men and women with no steel in their backbone, no gravel in their gut. They can't take a stand. They can't lead their families right. How in the world are they going to lead a ministry or a church right? And all through the Bible. Revelation 19, 11, And the armies that were in heaven followed after him. That's the second coming of Christ. You don't believe you're in the army? Get off that white horse. I'm going to come up to you up there, and I'm going to get off that white horse. <laughs> Revelation 19. The book of Joel. Most of the minor prophets and even the major prophets. But in Joel chapter 2, there's an avenging army coming down. Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 4, talks about you and me as the church, as, a, as an army with banners coming back. Judges, chapter 5, is an incredible chapter. All through the Bible, all through the Bible. And you know, uh, we as soldiers, as the church militant, 
We have a military structure in Christianity. Hey, I'm sorry that the church you go to, I'm sorry that you have been raised in a Christianity that didn't tell you that. I mean, the very songs in our hymnal, the old songs they used to sing, are all military songs. Hold the fort, for I am coming. Am I a soldier of the cross? Onward, Christian soldiers. And I'm telling sound the battle cry. Now you have those nightclubs Christian songs where they talk about, I love him. Oh, I love him. He touched my heart, and I love him. And I love everybody because he loved me, and he loved me because I love him because God is love, and God's love is in me. Therefore, I will love you. Am I a soldier of the cross? Through bloody seas I've waged. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as the war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Which would you rather have? Love you, I love you. We have a captain. You know that? Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, that Jesus Christ is the captain of my salvation. He's my captain. We're told in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that he has chosen, he has chosen you and me, if you're saved this morning, to be a soldier for Jesus Christ. And he tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, that because we have been chosen to be a soldier, that we as a soldier need to endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, 18, that I'm the war a good warfare. Years ago, back in the 1800s, when William Booth, who was a general, William Booth started an organization called the Salvation Army. And it, back in the day, it was a military Christian church militant func- a formation. They all wore uniforms, and they had ranks in there, and they did they did. He took the concept of the church militant to the extreme. And for a long time, they were an army. They marched in parades with big banners with crosses on them and, and told the story of Christ. They stood on the street corner and played their instruments uh, down in the sections of town where the derelicts were, wherever the lost was. If William Booth came back today and walked through the first church in the Salvation Army, he'd have a heart attack before he got past the first ashtray. It's a mess today. It's a rabble. It's not even an army anymore. And Christianity isn't either. Now, I've been around soldiers all my life. Military men have a very unique quality about them. And we gravitate in this church to men who are military or military-minded and and women too. You know, a real professional soldier will have four basic qualities about him that I think they're invaluable. The first quality that we have is one of self-discipline. He'll be self-motivated. We talk about courage. We talk about being strong and courageous. You know where courage comes from? Courage starts with your self-discipline. Courage starts with you disciplining your emotions so that when something comes into your life that would scare the average person, 
you stand up to it and you and you 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 stand because you've got the courage and the self-discipline and the self-motivation is what gets you through. I'll tell you something else they've got, the second quality. It's the mindset of self-sacrifice. They realize that a real soldier, I know you got soldiers that don't want to be in and all that. When I was in, you had the Vietnam War and half the guys wanted to get out, you know, and uh, they hated it and people were going to Canada. I'm not talking about guys like that. I'm talking about real soldiers. They understand the concept of self-sacrifice. A real soldier will know that his life In the grand scheme of war, he's expendable. But he'll understand that the way he may be expendable, the mission never will be. They'll take the idea that, and that doesn't mean you you foolishly give your life, do something stupid to get killed. We always follow the philosophy that wars are not won by you giving your life for your country. Wars are won by you making the other guy give his life for his. But it took a self-discipline. And then it took the third thing, a strict adherence to the chain of command. In the military, you lead from the top down. Good leadership is a must. You have good leaders, you'll have a good, you'll have a good squad, or you'll have a good platoon, or you'll have a good company. You get a bad leader, and you'll get a lot of guys killed. The greatest chapter in the Bible on principles and leadership is found in Exodus chapter 32. It is without a doubt the definitive paramount chapter in the Bible on training leaders. And I'm always looking to train leaders. I see people in my church, people that I meet, I'll comb every aisle, every chair, looking for anybody who has a speck of ability to be a leader. If you can take your dog out and lead him to go to the bathroom and bring him back safely, I'm interested in you. I have something to work with. Building leaders is what I do. Building leaders is what I understand. And building leadership is is an art form. And I learned it not because I'm so brilliant or bright or intelligent. I learned it because in my life I associated with great leaders. And the fourth thing he has is honor. He lives by a code of honor. He with his fellow soldiers will put his life in their hands and ask them to put their life into his hands with no fear of ever letting you fall through. One of the great military organizations of the past, their motto was, my honor is loyalty. And as God's people, I'm telling you, these are the same four qualities that will make you a great soldier for Jesus Christ. I I have a job to do for the Lord. God saved me for a purpose. And I know what that job is, and I know what that purpose is, and I know how to do it. And I also know to do what I want to accomplish in my life, in the church that God has provided for me, and the, and the mission that God has given me. I know, I understand fully and completely. I get it. It takes a certain kind of person to do the job that I want done. I, I, I've said this many times. This church is not for everybody. I, I, I've made no bones about that. And I understand that. I totally get it. I'm looking in these last days for a certain kind of man and woman. 
And, and I, I'm telling you, uh, and, it, and it's okay. If somebody comes here and they don't think they can fit in, it does not make them a bad person. In most cases, they're fine. Uh, they'll find some place to go and they'll settle in and they'll, they'll, they'll just be, they'll be okay. It's, it's, it's where, they're, where they're at. But I have learned, I have learned that if, if you're going to do the job for me, it's going to take a very special cut of person because I'm not satisfied of just being the ordinary. All my life, whatever I've done, I went through Mach 5 with my hair on fire. I never, I never was satisfied with the status quo. In the world, if everybody is walking this way, and all humanity is walking this way, in the big circle of life, if they're walking this way, I can guarantee you one thing, I will be walking this way. I will go against everything that is the status quo. Because I realize that to do the job for the Lord Jesus Christ, it takes a special individual in these days, anyhow. I mean, it's just that simple. It's a thing where, you know, we are no different or we shouldn't be from uh, what, the way they train the elite. The special forces, the rangers or the SEALs or the British SAS or the Marine Recons. I mean, you'll get 200 guys to try out and maybe only 20 or 30 of them will make it. When you go to SEAL school and bud training, they got this big bell and when you can't take it anymore. And boy, they put it to you. And when they can't take it anymore, you go up and you ring the bell and you're out. It doesn't mean, it doesn't say, they will tell you, it doesn't mean you're a bad soldier. It doesn't mean you're not qualified in your, what you do. It just means for what we want to do and where we want to go and what we want to accomplish. You're not what we're looking for. As the old song says, 100 men will test today but only three win the Green Beret. There's a process of going through and learning. And you'll always have an army. You'll always have a navy. You'll always have a Marine Corps. You'll always have an Air Force. You'll always have the Coast Guard. And I'll tell you, in the military, they call those kind of soldiers, and it's not a derogatory mark, it's just a true statement. They call them citizen soldiers. They're citizen soldiers because they came out of society, they do what they do, and then they go back to society as a citizen. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, I have all the respect in the world for the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps. This is not a slam against them at all. But you're going to find that in every military organization within the world, I don't care what country you pick, you're always going to have those who want to be the best of the best. They're not satisfied with a status quo either. All the way back in 1755, when we were fighting the French and Indian War, and we were on the British side back then, and the British were the goofiest people in warfare, but that's the way warfare was back then. They had rules in warfare. Uh, and they, they, they all, they, we called them redcoats because they all wore red coats. How, how much you stand out on a battlefield wearing a red coat? And they were called red coats. And they, they, when they fought up against another army, they all lined up in rows from maybe one row here of 5,000 guys and another row 7,500 yards away of 5,000 guys. And they stood there and just shot at each other. You shoot me, I'll shoot you. 
And whoever runs out of ammunition first will live. The Germans did the same thing. They had a saying, if, the, if it rains, the war will be held in the auditorium. There was a guy who saw the fallacy of that, whose name was Richard Rogers. And in 1775, a long time ago, he started what was known down through history as Rogers Rangers. Now, he realized that wearing a red coat was goofy, so he dressed all his guys in, in, in forest green so he could blend in with the trees. The British had a thing that uh, it was great to be an officer in the British Army because one of the rules were if you're an officer, you can't get shot. Don't shoot the officers. They're gentlemen. Shoot all the peons out there. But don't shoot the guys on the horses or the guys with the sword. Don't shoot them. And every once in a while, one of them got killed, you know, just by accident. But the rules were don't shoot the officers. And the officers would ride back and forth, and they'd get out of the way, you know, and their, their little peons would slug it out and die by the hundreds and by the thousands, and they'd go home, have their little tea and the crumpets and all that stuff, because you couldn't shoot it. Rogers changed all that. His mindset was, we want to disorganize the army. Shoot the officers first. Boy, what a surprising day that was the first time Rogers Rangers showed up. <laughs> You lost your officer corps in about 15 minutes. And then, because the army was trained to follow the officers in strict discipline, and they never allowed the enlisted people to be part of that little group, you kill all the officers who's given the order. It all falls apart. 1775, he did that. And down through history, they were called Rogers Rangers, an elite group in World War II. You had a guy by the name of Bill Donovan who started what we know back then as the OSS in World War II. Turned into the CIA later. And he was a covert guy and he did incredible things. You had a guy by the name of William Darby in World War II who, who patterned and, and studied Rogers Rangers and he developed the Darby's Rangers of World War II. You had Colonel Fredericks who had a desire for an elite organization above the army, above the regular corps. And he, he established with the Canadian Army a, a, a joint group called the First Special Service Force. Along with that, in World War II, you had the regular soldiers that were great guys. You couldn't have won the war without them. This is not a criticism against them. But you had guys who wanted to be better. And they joined the 101st Airborne. They joined the 82nd Airborne. They joined the 517th in the Pacific. They joined the 11th. And there were crucial times, there were a crucial time, like the Battle of the Bulge, when Bastogne, the little town in Belgium, had five roads going into it, and the Germans launched a surprise counterattack in, in December, right before Christmas in 44. And they, they completely caught the Americans off guard, and the frontline troops that were holding the line all panicked and ran. They dropped their rifles, they went, and they had, to, they had to put in the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne, and the 101st Airborne was in Bastogne, completely surrounded. No winter clothes, coldest winter in Europe. No winter clothes, some of them only had one clip of seven or eight rounds of ammunition. No food, no nothing. Completely surrounded by the German army who wanted Bastogne. If Bastogne would have fallen, there's a good chance they would have taken Antwerp, Belgium, and we'd have lost the war. And those troops that were there, they were not prepared for it. They, they saw, they heard the tanks rumbling and the shells coming in, and they, they ran. 
And he had the truck in the 82nd and the 101st Airborne. 101st got stuck right in the middle of Bastogne. This is where the uh, General McAuliffe, uh, the, the divisional commander for the 101st, he, uh, he was surrounded and the Germans came in and offered him a surrender uh, thing. If you surrender your truth, we'll let you live. He looked at it and wrote on it and said back to your commander, nuts. German says, hmm, also nuts. What does nuts mean? One guy, sergeant, says, that's kind of like go to. <laughs> he didn't give up. They had news guys there, and, and, and they come up to, uh, Dick Winters was a, a famous guy, and I met him a couple of times, and he was a great, great guy, dead now, and uh, I think he might have been a Christian. And uh, they come up to him, and they said, don't you know? Now, he was, the, he was Easy Company's commander of the 101st Airborne, a very elite group, and they're surrounded in Bastogne, and he said, don't you know you're surrounded don't you know that you're surrounded and, and, and what are you guys going to do? He looked at that guy and he says, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. And somebody will say to you in Christianity, don't you know it's a tough world out there? Don't you know the world and the flesh and the devil is going to try to kick your rear end? Don't you know they're going to come after you? And your response should be, I'm a child of God. I'm a soldier of the cross. I'm supposed to be surrounded. Instead, we throw down our weapon and run for it. I don't need those kind of guys. I don't need those kind of women. I need women in this church who are the sweetest, petitest, most beautiful little things and creatures that walk this planet who will bite you like a junkyard dog if you get on their wrong side. They'll smile. They'll be kind and pleasant. And you'll say, I think the King James Bible's got a bunch of mistakes in it. I think you guys are a cult. And she will tear you apart. She'll say to you, you want to lose 25 pounds of ugly fat? Well, yeah, who wouldn't? Good. Cut your head off. Back in the 80s and the 90s, they had what they called in the 82nd, Air, 82nd Airborne a rapid deployment battalion. A battalion's 400 to 600 guys, depending on your strength. And their job was they could be dropped anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world in 24 hours or less in any situation that arose. I've always wanted my men and women in this church just like that. I always wanted to train you that God could take you and drop you into any situation that you would be able to handle it. That God had enough confidence in you. That you had enough confidence in God and yourself in the Bible. That God could drop you in any scenario, anywhere, around the world, in your job, in your neighborhood, with your friends, anywhere. And God could just put you right down in the middle of that without a parachute. And you just pick it up and handle it. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I want. I'm tired of the mamsy-pamsy Christianity. I'm tired of the Christians who are always whining and complaining about everything. I'm, I'm sick and tired of God's people just being such a defeatist attitude. And to be like that, it takes a special kind of discipline, self-discipline, commitment. And most of God's people, they're great people. They really are. But to be honest, they're satisfied with where they're at. They're saved. They're on their way to heaven. They're muddling through life. 
and they're satisfied with that. They got just enough of Bible to get them through their day. Oh, I know. They, they have their little daily breads. Oh, I know. Uh, they have, which have turned into their daily crumbs. I get it. <laughs> they have all the little things, all the little niceties that all the little God's people have. They go to church, and they hear a nice platonic service. They have a nice band. Somebody's singing. Everything is sweet. Everything is kind. Some little guy gets up and, and talks about salvation all the time or talks about this. He'll never get down to the basics of real Christian warfare. And God's people are satisfied today. They're satisfied with the status quo. And I'm going to tell you something. No disrespect to you. I love you. And this is not a slam against you, but you will not fit in this church. And I don't want it to be bad for you, and I don't want it to be bad for me, but mostly for you. Because I'm not looking, I'm not looking for the standard status quo here. I'm looking for a young man or a young lady or a mom or dad, somebody who will pick up their weapon, get on their post, and stand there watch. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 23, I'm going to preach this the last night at camp. You have the great chapter on David's mighty men of valor. And David, I mean, they had an army. Israel had a great army just like we did. But within that army, there were certain men who went way beyond what was asked of them. They went way beyond what was called on them to do. And boy, when you read down there, some of the feats and some of the things that they did are unbelievable. One guy, one guy took on 900 guys and killed every one of them. Now, I know what the scholars say. The scribal error was, scribal made an error, was bleary-eyed that night and, and took nine and added a, a couple zeros to it. No, no, no. One guy, one guy with the power of God took on 900 guys and defeated them. And there will be times in your Christian life when the odds will be 900 to 1. And whether you stand or not, whatever you stand or whatever you do will depend on the self-discipline you've allowed God to build into you to be a good soldier to do a hardness of Jesus Christ. That one guy was fighting those guys. He had a sword in his hand. Picture the word of God. He's slashing them and cutting them. And after 900 guys, his, the muscles in his hand cramped so badly around that sword that he couldn't, he couldn't drop it. He couldn't let it go. And I want to tell you something. That Bible says the sword is the word of God. And you ought to have so in, that, in your hand fighting the battle with that sword that you can't let it go. You may not like this. You may not think this is good advice. But the greatest advice for you to stay in that book and stay close to God is to get into a good fight spiritually with somebody with the Word of God. Because when you don't fight, you get passive. You just take things in stride. You start watching. You start on television. You don't watch war movies anymore. You watch the Hallmark Channel. You, you, you watch the, you, you watch the, you, you watch the, uh, the, the, the sound of music. <laughs> and she walks up and down there and says, the hills are alive. <laughs> Most people don't catch that. The hills will become alive with the sound of music. You ought to read the Old Testament. It's when the Lord comes back in the millennium. The trees clap their hands. You say, I didn't know trees had hands. Why? They got limbs. 
Like I preached one time and I preached on hell and I said there'd be wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth down in Alabama someplace or Kentucky. An old lady came up afterwards. She, she didn't have any, her teeth, she had just gums, you know what I'm saying? And she's like, you know how your, your mouth caves in around that, you know, and those things? And I, she lost her t- teeth a long time ago, you can tell. You know, I was a thought, oh, I hope she don't want to kiss me. <laughs> she came out and she said, preacher, I heard your message. You said gnashing your teeth. Ha, 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 ha. I don't have any teeth. I said, Madam, teeth will be provided. (laughs) All down through history, all down through history, great military men who experienced battles have written books how to win a war. They'll write down their experiences of tactics in warfare. Hermann Gehrig, who was the head of the Luftwaffe in the German army, was a fighter ace in World War I. He wrote a, a tactical book on fighter planes after World War I. It was, it was everybody followed it. Erwin Rommel was the tank commander in Germany in World War II. A great, brilliant tactician. He wrote, he wrote a book on tank tactics, which was studied all over the world. General Patton did the same thing. MacArthur did the same thing. Books on the tactics of warfare so somebody else could study by what they had experienced and then wage their warfare. Today in our military, we'll send the finest of our young men and young ladies to places like West Point, places like Annapolis or or the Air Force Academy. And they will train them to be leaders, to be officers, and they'll all go through these books and everything that these guys wrote, they'll get class after class after class on, on how to wage a warfare. Right up here in Leavenworth, Kansas, we have Fort Leavenworth. Fort Leavenworth, is, I think, is the oldest fort in, in, in America. And uh, there they have what they call the War College. And from around the world, and I've met many of them. I had two really good friends that were teachers up there taught military history. <coughs> And around the world, they'll bring in uh, officers from majors up to go to that war college. You know what they teach them there? They teach them the expanse of everything they've learned in history of how to win a war. And they train them in leadership and warfare. They'll sit down in a class, and these guys will end the difference between an enfilade fire and a defilade fire. They'll understand better how to do an assault on a fixed position. They'll learn how to do a beach assault. They'll learn how to do an infantry assault. They'll learn how to do an armor assault. They'll come out of there, and all of that material will be stuff that has been compiled by guys and soldiers down through history that have worked. And in Christianity, we are to be a trained army to fight on our warfare. And our warfare, Ephesians 6, 12, is not physical, but it's spiritual. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And one of the disastrous mistakes that churches and pastors make today is never learning the great principle and training people that God will never send green troops into combat. And we as pastors and we as churches get them in, get them saved, <coughs> sprinkle a little Bible on them and then throw them right back into the lions and then wonder why they don't make it. 
it's hard to, for a soldier to fight without a weapon. A weapon by his side and a weapon that he is trained to use. And the very pastors who were called to train young men and young women with a sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, have taken that weapon and replaced it, that sword, and replaced it with a butter knife. They've taken the King James Bible, the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, took it out of their hands and then replaced it and issued them a butter knife. And now they're supposed to go out against the world, the flesh, and the devil, not with a sword, but a butter knife. I guarantee you the guy back there, David Mineman of Our, not fared quite as well giving up the sword and picking up his butter knife from lunch. And I want to tell you something. A soldier, any soldier, is worthless without his weapon. You learn to eat with it. You sleep with it. You never leave it. About, you always have it by your side. You know it inside and out. And Christianity today, just as military, is worthless with a bunch of God's people who have no weapon and don't know how to use it if they have it. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is found back in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And I have a message I preach on it. I've never really preached it to you guys. I haven't preached it for years. But it's simply called No Smith in Israel. And what Saul did, who is a terrible king and a coward, by the way, picture of most pastors today, he takes the blacksmiths that made all the swords for the Israel's armies and he put them out of business. He wouldn't allow them to make any more swords. And then he took the contract for making swords from the Israelite blacksmith and gave it to the unshaved, uncircumcised Philistine blacksmiths. Now the Philistines were the enemy of God and they wanted to take over God's people in Israel. So it was a brilliant move for them, for Saul, the rotten pastor, to take the sword right out of the hands of the people and turn it over to the world system, the Philistines. It's a lot like today taking the King James Bible that is God made out of your hand and then replace it with a man-made piece of junk like an NIV or ASV and expect you to fight the battle. And you know what? When the Philistines come down, they didn't have anything to fight with. You know what the Bible says they had to fight with? Gardening tools. And they got defeated. And most pastors today, most churches today, they train their people with gardening tools. It's great if you want nice rosebuds. Well, we don't live in a rosebud Christianity, at least I don't. At Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, he tells you about seven pieces of armor that he has. And it's offensive and defensive, because all warfare is offensive and defensive. And he says, take unto you the whole armor of God. And he said that you may be able to stand, that's not enough, and done everything and all to stand. And then he says, stand therefore. And when he comes down through that seven pieces uh, of, of Christian warfare, you'll find that four of them cover the four vital areas of your life as a Christian. In 617, he talked about the helmet of salvation. That covers your head. You've got to get your thinking right. In a season, chapter 6, 15, he talks about the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's your feet. You've got to get your walk right. Then he says in 6.16, take the shield of faith. 
to quench all the fiery darts. You got to get your emotions squared away. You got to keep those fiery darts from penetrating inside your body. And the last one, 614, is the breastplate of righteousness. That covers your heart, that you always love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all your mind, and all of your soul. And in our text today, verse 6, it starts by saying, For by wise counsel thou shalt make war. You know, in the Army and the Marine Corps and the Air Force and the Navy, you have a handbook. I think in the Marines they call it a guidebook. In the Army we called it a field manual. And it was a manual that you went through it and you read and you studied it that taught you everything that the military wanted you to know about structure, combat. Now when you went through basic, if you're headed for an infantry outfit, then you went from basic to AIT, Advanced Infantry School. And you got more. But when you got into combat, it's the principles of the manual and the experience you get in combat that make you a good soldier. It's just like your Bible. As a good soldier of Jesus Christ, we too have a handbook. It's the Word of God. And what will make you a good soldier is not just learning and reading the Bible and getting the principles of warfare down. You got to get into the battle and actually use those principles. When we do discipleship with you, it's basics training. <clears throat> Once you get through discipleship and basic training, if you even make that, then we take you to our spiritual AIT, advanced infantry training. And we'll give you discipleship too. We'll give you this. Then if you make that, then we'll take you to jump school. And then if you make that, then we'll take you to special forces school, and we'll put you in a, in a, in a ranger battalion. We'll put you in a, in, a, in, a, in a SEAL unit, and now you'll be an expert in warfare, spiritually speaking, that wherever God wants to put you, he'll just lift you up and drop you right in it, not think twice about it. He'll have all the confidence in the world in you because you'll have all the confidence built in you with a weapon that God gave you. They used to get us up at 3 o'clock in the morning when we went to bed about uh, 9 o'clock and just into a good sound sleep about probably 2 or 3 and wake us up and everybody out of the racks and everybody grabbed your rifle and the DI would get down to one end of the barracks and he'd turn the lights on until your eyes got kind of focused and you'd be sitting there with your rifle on the floor and he'd turn that light off and he'd yell at you to tear it apart. And he'd walk from one end of that barracks to the other and all you could hear was pieces of metal clanging in a pure back I just got adjusted, now you're back to it. You're taking that rifle apart. When he got down at this end, he'd turn the light on, he'd walk up and down to see who didn't do it right. Then he'd get to the other end, and he'd turn the light back out, and he'd put it, tell you to put it together again. And all you could hear was he walked down there with guys trying to put everything together. And then when you get down, if it was put together right, when you pull the trigger, it'd go click. If it didn't go together right, it wouldn't go click. And he walked down there listening for clicks. God help you if your gun didn't go click. That's the way you ought to be with the Bible. Paul said you preach that book in season or out of season. You ought to be able to take that thing apart blindfolded. While there's Chinese kids under communism, by the time they're seven or eight years old, can take a Chi-Com 50 or a machine gun apart blindfolded. And I've got some of God's people in my life who've been saved for 15, 20 years. You can't even find the books in the Bible. And you're going to go into war? 
Do me a favor. Take the Bible in one hand and a white flag in the other. My Bible is my wise counsel to make war as a Christian in this spiritual warfare. It's my guidebook. It's my field manual. When the Bible says I'm to make war by wise counsel, that's what he's talking about. And the Old Testament is is just filled with it. Some of the greatest lessons on warfare that you ever saw in your life are found in the Old Testament. You take the book of Joshua. Joshua is probably the greatest military book on military campaigning that you've ever read anywhere in the Bible, if not the world. Joshua, when he goes into the land, makes a brilliant move, which is taught today. He divides the country. We know it is divide and conquer. Once he divided their forces and couldn't let them get back together, then he could hold the one off while he defeated the other and then come back and take his full force and get the other one. It's a standard tactic in your life. You don't go three verses in your Bible before you're told that God divides to conquer. You want to get rid of the sin in your life? You want to get rid of the problem you have? You divide yourself from it and then you'll conquer it. You'll never conquer it till he gets out of your life, she gets out of your life, it gets out of your life. You know how you got saved? You're supposed to have the victory in Christ Jesus after you got saved. You know how you can do that? Because the day you got saved, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, a spiritual circumcision took place inside you that divided your flesh from your soul. Now you can conquer. In the book of Joshua, they fight three major campaigns. Incredible. Over 30 different armies they engage. You have the battle of Jericho, the battle of Ai, the five kings at Gibeon. You have the battle of Hazar. And in chapter 12, he lists the the, the victory over 31 kingdoms that they have defeated. Incredible. In the book of Judges. Another great book. You have the great battle plan of Gideon in Gideon 300. You have the great battle plan of Samson over the Philistines. You have the great battle in Judges chapter 5 of Deborah over Sisera. And in the Bible, our field guide to victory over the battles of this life. Because I'm here to tell you this morning that some of you are going to get defeated in this warfare. Some of you already have. Some of you have already let the world creep in, and it's already doing its damage. And you know what? Right now, this morning, you can't stand for anything. In all my life, all my life, I've watched God's people succumb to the battle. Never using the handbook. Never following the chain of command. Never becoming above the status quo. Always just being a citizen soldier who really just never get the job done. And I, in my Bible, I have 52 listed in the back. I have 52 basic battles that God's people lose. 52 battles, and not just the, the major ones, 52 battles that I have cataloged in my almost 50 years in the ministry of God's people being defeated 
in these 52 battles. And I want to talk about just a few of them. First of all, if you really want to understand the battle of spiritual warfare, you need to go to 2 Kings chapter 6. One of the most divining passages in, on spiritual warfare anywhere in the Bible. It shows you what you're really up against because most of God's people don't know their enemy and don't have a clue what they're up against. I've seen so many of God's people fall on the battlefield to satanic strongholds. I've seen addictions come into their life. I've seen the world come into their life in a, in a form of a boyfriend or a girlfriend that they get just as addicted to as they do drugs or alcohol. I've seen a young gal or young guy start to get on fire for God and do what needs to be done, and then that stronghold comes into his life. And let me just tell you, a stronghold will be anything in your life that you put above what God has given you in the Word of God. And I've seen him fall in the battlefield to a stronghold. And yet my handbook, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, tells you how to get the victory over that stronghold. Because by wise counsel you make war. I've seen so many of God's people fall on the battlefield of depression. Proverbs 25, 28 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit like a city broken down without walls. The number one issue of God's people today is depression. Depression will come into your life and my life as a child of God because of the fact, very simply, you're not doing what God wants you to do. And it's produced because of the Lack of Bible, lack of training, it's produced a Prozac Christianity. And John chapter 8 verse 9 will tell you why Prozac Christianity will never work. I've known a young man one time who was as goofy as could be, and I always wondered out why he was so goofy. And then I found out from the time he was four years old, his mom had him on those kind of drugs. And he was 25, 28 when I met him. All of those years, because his mom thought that was the answer to his issues. She never thought getting him into the Bible was. The easy route is just sedate him. You want the answer to depression? You want to get into the manual and find out the good counsel? 1 Kings 18. I've seen moms and dads lose the battle for their kids. You want the model for that in the Bible, in the handbook? Judges chapter 11. Go study Jephthah. I've seen so many of them lose the battle for their marriage. And of course, the answer to that is in Ephesians chapter 5. And moms and dads, husbands and wives will lose these battles all the time. You got an issue with your family that you need to heal your family? Well, go to the handbook in Luke chapter 8, verse 37. One of the greatest single principles anywhere in the Bible, how to heal your family if you're the one that's hurt them. I've seen them, I, I've seen them lose the battle for their health. Most churches have wellness groups. They'll have groups that you can go in because you have some ailment or whatever and you sit around and whatever you do in a wellness group, hopefully you get well. 
I've always loved, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, I've always loved you, Sam, and you've always been special to me. You're an old soldier, military guy all your life. And Sam got terminal cancer. And he's going through some really tough times in his life right now. Sam, I'll never forget the Bible study when we told everybody, you and I had known about it and a few other people. Sam's question in Bible study wasn't, where's the greatest faith healer or where can I go to get somebody to fix this? His question was, I'm going to die. Give me the principles that when I meet God, I meet him right where I need to be with him. You know, understanding sickness in your life, the Bible tells you three reasons why we have a sickness. The book of Job is the greatest book in the Bible that shows you uh, why that as a child of God, you need to take Sam's position instead of a whiny position that so many other ones take. Why me, Lord? Why not you? Why not me? After all he did on the cross for me and for you and the agony he went through, and you're going to go plain because you've got to go through some little trial in your life that you can't handle? What planet do you live on? Well, I just, you just don't understand. No, the problem is I understand too well. Job lost in seven days what none of us will live in, lose in a lifetime. And when it came down to him, he took Sam's position, or Sam took his position. Somebody said to him, well, why don't you just, he said, you know what? I don't care if he kills me, I'm going to trust him. You know, Job, at the end of his life, was better off than he was when he was in his life after what he went through. You know, sometimes you may have to go through some tough times in life, but if you make it in this life, you're, you're going to come out better on the other end. And if you don't make it and you go home to be with the Lord, then you're really going to have a good day. And there are some of God's people that the most terrible thing in their life is they're thinking, oh, what if I die and go to heaven well, then die and go to hell. See how that works for you. We lose battle after battle after battle. We lose the battle many times of jealousy or envy. Check out David and Saul. We, leave the battle of, we lose the battle of deceitfulness. Study the life of Jacob. Study the Gibeon principle in Joshua 9, 14. It's all in the handbook. We lose the battle of selfishness. It's all about us, what I want. Me, 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 me. Get in your own way. Study John chapter 11 with Mary and Martha. I've seen them lose the battle of the world. Study the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. I've seen him lose the battle and turn bitter. Get bitter at God, get bitter at people, get bitter at the ministry, get bitter at the church. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 tells you there's a root cause for your bitterness. And when you go down through that chapter, you'll find the eight absolute principles on battling bitterness. It's in the handbook. The one you're supposed to make war with?
And then there's the battle. Boy, this one's a real killer. Then there's the battle. And boy, this is a battle that most God's people fail. The battle of making right decisions in life. I'd say that's the number one problem that messes every one of our lives up. The bad choices that we make. You want to study that? Study Gideon over there in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. Putting out the fleece, how stupid that was. Go back to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Learn that everything in life that you're going to do is going to have an outcome, good or bad, is going to be based on a single decision sometimes you make. I've seen them lose the battle of life in the valleys that they have to face going through the struggles. The ups and the downs of life. I've learned from 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 28, that I don't allow ups and downs in my life. I just keep everything even. I don't have any ups. I don't have any downs. Everything is just even. That's in the handbook. I've seen him lose the battle for temptation. See Samson, Judges chapter 14. See the book of James. Now, there are many, many, many more of these. Like I said, I have recorded over the years 52 of them. The Bible will cover every scenario you'll face to show you the battle plan and a way to get the right counsel, the wise counsel on the warfare that you're in. You'll fight this battle with good counsel, wise wisdom, and understanding through the principles of the Word of God. It's the soldier's handbook. The next thing you do, once you get the handbook down, we talked last week about association. Now you start hanging out with the combat vets. You get with the right crowd. You say, well, there's, that's a click. Yeah, as long as it's God's click, it's okay. You get with the hardcores. You get with the tough. You get with the enduring men and women who don't whine and complain about every little thing. You find the people that in every given situation are flexible, adaptable, they're compatible, and they're durable. That they can do anything. Like this camp coming up. People coming from 50, 60 people coming from all walks of life. And in one 15-minute session, you become cohesive as one. Why? Because you're good people? Well, you are, but that's not the reason. Because how you were trained. Learn from the old school vets. How they learn to survive. Look at the ones who have raised their kids the right way and focus on that. Look at the ones that have the really good marriages and focus on that. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 2, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Learn from the vets. Learn how to build a church from someone who already has built one, 1 Samuel 3. Learn how to build people from the model found in Acts chapter 11. Learn where the booby traps and the tripwires are in Christianity from somebody who can see them before you step on them. Learn from a vet. They used to give us a class on booby traps. The Viet Cong were absolutely textbook on booby traps. And the Americans, they played on Americans' weakness. 
They knew Americans were soft compared to the Vietnamese. And, you know, the, the, the American guys would go over there and they would call them VC, which was the technical name. They would call them gooks. They would call them slant eyes. You know, every war, every place has always had its name. If you were a vet and you were there for any time and you survived, you called him Mr. Victor Charlie. You had a respect for him. He was a guy that could run all week on a handful of maggoty rice and fight you to a standstill. He was the guy that you could put out all the Constantino wire you wanted and you could make it foolproof, and in the middle of a rainstorm in the middle of the night, he would sneak through it without ever touching one of those cans that would alert you and cut your throat while you're asleep. They knew that America was soft, that when they went on a patrol, they'd always take the easy trail. And we learned very quickly, whatever trail you go out on, don't come back on that same trail because it'll be booby-trapped to the hilt on the way back. And then we learned, stay off the trails. Cut your way through the toughest jungle you have to because he's expecting you not to. They used to take punji stakes and used to dig a hole, bamboo stakes and cut them, make them razor sharp, put them in the ground, and then they used to urinate on them or defecate on them. That when you stepped through the hole and went down, went up through your boot, you got an instant infection. They used to have bouncing beddies that you would step on it and it would come up waist level and it would blow out and kill anybody within a 20-yard range. They used to have death stakes hooked to a trip wire that would be up to a tree with bamboo spikes on it. And when you would walk through and you'd trip that wire, it would swing out and catch you and pin you to a wall and impale you. They were experts at it. You not only had to look for them, they would take our 155 howitzer around, bury them in the ground with a primer on the end, put a nail, a nail! You could buy it at a hardware store for two cents. Put a nail through a pine board, put it on there, cover it up, and when you stepped on it, it pumped that primer and killed everybody within a 200-yard range. And I'm telling you, there's just as many booby traps in Christianity. There's just as many tripwires out there that will so easily beset you. The devil wants to make sure that he shuts your walk down so it's in the darkness of this world and he's got booby traps all over the place and the only way you can see him is to turn the light on and that'll be the light from the Word of God. Your manual. Your handbook. And in the ministry, I was in combat, you never set a new guy out without some vets with him. That's why in discipleship, there's always two or three people with you. We try to put people in your life that'll make you better. And a great example of this is Paul with his three sons, uh, you know, that listed in the Bible. And he probably had 10,000, but he had Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, he charges him. He gives him 12 charges. The whole book of Timothy is built around those 12 charges. Great counsel on warfare. And do you ever hear it today? Then he wrote 2 Timothy, and he gave him great insight into the warfare in personal instruction. Four chapters, four great principles. Chapter 1, remember your gifts, your calling, your training. Chapter 2, remember to hold the sound words, hold the sound strength, hold the sound doctrine, and hold endurance. In chapter 3, he said, remember, you're living in perilous time, so you're going to have to deal with perilous people. In chapter 4, he said, remember, always be ready to preach that book. In season, out of season. 
Be God's man where he can drop you wherever he wants to drop you. Remember your mission. Now that's great advice from a man to his spiritual sons. And yet it's never taught today. Then you have Titus. He tells Titus to be a good soldier, has to be a good steward of the things of God. You know, in the Bible, there's seven things that we're to be stewards of, and every child, every, every soldier has to take care of his equipment. And those are the seven things that God has entrusted to us that we're to take care of. And most of God's people don't even know what they are. In Philemon. Now, in Philemon, he's got the example of a runaway slave, which his name is Onesimus. And he tells Onesimus, who Paul wins to Christ, they're in prison together or jail together, and Paul wins him to Christ, and this guy tells him the story how he ran away from his master, and Paul says, who's your master? He says, Philemon. He says, man, that's one of my boys who started a church. He's my son in the Lord. You know what Paul does? He writes a letter to Philemon to send back to Philemon on Onesimus' behalf in his hand to say, you know what, this guy got saved, and he understands now what real freedom is in Christ Jesus. And he now understands and he has a whole new set of principles to live with. So I'm asking you to take him back in without punishing him. Allow him to come back in because he understands now that as a Christian, here it comes, there is an absolute chain of command we must follow. Follow the principles. Follow the handbook. It's filled with the tactics of our warfare. And if you want to wage good warfare, wise warfare with wise counsel, that's what you got to do. Then look at the last part quickly of verse 6. He says, For by wise counsel thou shalt make war. And then he says, In a multitude of counselors there is safety. My, my, my. Standard teaching today. You got a problem, go ask the next 50 people, you see what to think you ought to do. And then pick the one you like. That's how it works today. That's not what the verse is saying. No, that's not what it's saying at all, but that's what we do. Going to someone and telling them your problem when they don't have the ability to fix it only proves to me you really don't want to fix it. He says a multitude of counselors. Well, let's start with this. That would be 66 counselors in your Bible because you have 66 books. Add to that another 5,000 other counselors in the books through their trials and their tribulations and all the things that they go through. So when he talks about in a multitude of counselors, he's not going to your friend to get their homespun philosophy of how to fix your problem with grandma's secret recipe. He's saying, go to the field manual, go to the book that God gave you, and in a multitude of those counselors, you'll get the right answer. Now look at the last part of that verse. And in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Now that's a good word, safety. Everybody wants to be safe. Be safe. Be safe. Safety first. Well, they don't even call them police anymore. They call them public safety officers. You know why? They want you to be safe. Now, safety in the church of God is, uh, in a Christian's life, is two things. There's two things that will keep him safe, or should. The first is the church itself. This church here, this body, is for your safety. 
No one will hurt you here. I've told that to many, many people, and I also tell them, you may hurt yourself, but this church will never hurt you, and in most cases, they have hurt themselves. That's okay, as long as we know we didn't hurt them. I've had guys that I've done everything to, and they've lied to me. They have been dishonest with me. They have been dis... And, and women, too. And it's a thing where, you know what? I always try to set the step that we do what's right. We may get criticized for not doing, but I guarantee you, we sit down with an open Bible and find out what we did and find what they do, it'd be a whole different story. That's okay. The second thing your safety is is Bible doctrine. In Institute... We started this year the doctrinal series, as I call it. We came through the first year and a half or so, and we laid out all of the structure things that they needed to see, the foundational stuff. Now we're really going into the meat of the Bible and laying out the doctrinal stuff. And I told them that a doctrine, the doctrine of the Bible forms a safety net. It's like, and I don't have a blackboard up here, but it's like if you took a magic marker and you put a line here, that's one Bible doctrine, then you put a line next to it, that's another Bible doctrine. Then you put another line to it, that's another Bible doctrine. And on and on and on. All those lines are Bible doctrine. And then you start going through the Bible and you'll find more Bible doctrines and they crisscross this way. What you got done when you're done is you got a net. A net of Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine is truth. Bible doctrine is the number one thing that the Bible was written for. The number one thing that God wants us to have. Why? It'll keep you safe. This is why in the handbook, in the manual, when you want to wage war, you want to do it with wisdom and understanding, you have to do it by biblical principles, biblical doctrine. And that forms a net. You'll never become a charismatic maniac because the doctrine will keep you from falling through the net. You'll never become a Jehovah Witness because that will save your Saturdays, because you'll never have to fall through the net of Jehovah Witnesses of doctrine to become one. You'll never become a cult. You'll never become a neo-evangelical cult. You'll never become part of the Alexandrian cult. You'll never become anything other than a Bible believer because the doctrine will keep you from falling through. It's your safety net. First, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, Doctrine is the number one thing in our life. Doctrine is what separates us from the world, and doctrine is what separates us from false Bible teaching. For the devil to defeat Christianity and do what he's done and taken his army and turned it into a defeated rabble, he had to do two things. First of all, he had to get, through to get, he had to get rid of the field manual, which he did. And when he got rid of the field manual, he got rid of the doctrine. And this is what he did to Israel by taking the blacksmiths completely out in 1 Samuel 13. And this is what he's done in Christianity. The pastors have taken the Word of God right out of it and replaced it with a world system. And yet in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, the Bible says, even though that was true in Israel's day, the Bible says that God was looking for a man. And it's no different today, God's looking for a man. He says, God is looking for a man who will stand in the gap before me and make up the hedge. There's a gap in Christianity today that needs to be made up. And that gap is Bible doctrine. And God is looking for a man who will take the manual, teach the warfare, get the doctrine, and then stand in that gap. 
but it won't be your little, 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 little Christians that are running around today. It won't be the ones who get their nose bent and a joint about everything. It won't be the ones who cannot stand. It'll be the ones who want to be the best of the best who will take their stand among the elite of David's mighty men of valor. And it takes a certain kind of person. And God is looking for that person, and I am too, because they make the best. They make the best because they won't run when things start to fall apart. When things start to fall apart, most of God's people fall apart. I'm looking for men and women, when things start falling apart, you start pulling it together. I'm looking for people, when everybody's running out of a disaster, you're running into it. That's what I'm looking for. But you've got to be trained to do that. You've got to see yourself as you really are in God to do that. And most God's people just don't pack the gear. They really don't. And the verse says, For by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war, and in the multitude of counselors there is safety. We'll hold up there 